Hey, everybody, it's Ned Buskirk, your creatively conscious mortality host for your favorite creatively conscious mortality podcast. You're going to die the podcast. Hello. Welcome. Nice to be in your ears again. All right. Let me cut to the chase. Uh, bop. It's about three weeks ago. Those of you that have been listening to the podcast, you know that uh, we went to Ohio with our prison program tour. This is kind of the beginning of, of what I'm getting to here, okay? This trip to Ohio, literally 72 hours nonstop, we flew in to Ohio, got off the plane and almost literally went into a prison, went into a prison the next morning, did our Alive Inside events in both those prisons, and then we did a retreat for exonerees. That was nonstop. And then we did an event in Columbus uh, with a bunch of other organizations that are doing work around the prison system impact on multiple communities. And then we went to the airport, flew back here, got back into this, this reality in California for us, which included our first in-person open mic. Uh, it's been a while. We got back to our venue, our home, the Lost Church's new space in North Beach, sold that out. Wonderful night, a lot of emotional catharsis, you know, the grief space, the creative grief space, being together in our mortality. Jump to the next week, less than five days later, around that, five days later, we have a concert, our first concert since our show uh, before the pandemic, our 10-year anniversary show. Um, our first show since then at Freight and Salvage in Berkeley for the Feelings Parade album release, and... That sold out, and it was so, so good and so much to, to, to experience. Meanwhile, that same week, we're back in San Quentin. We have a Monday night open mic where we got to go in and have 100-plus uh, attendees, community members inside San Quentin. So intensely emotional. A bunch of musicians playing music, holding space, listening, learning, uh, and then at the end of that week for this mental wellness week that we are a part of, we did a big concert in the yard in San Quentin. And there's a thousand people out there in the yard. And while we're playing a show, the musicians I'm with playing songs on a little stage next to a basketball court where the Golden State Warriors are playing the San Quentin basketball team. There's tennis professionals playing over in the tennis courts with community inside. There's literally a marathon running a COVID marathon happening uh, and we're playing music and wow, what a thing. Like one of the, one of the guys inside just described how they feel free. You know, they feel freedom. I would talk to some of these guys who have been inside for 30 years. They've just maybe came to San Quentin six months ago, the programming there, some of the experiences that get offered. What a thing, you know, you're standing next to someone who's been inside for 30 years 
looking at this, what I just described to you, all happening at once in the yard like a huge festival. And in the background, you can see the rolling hills of the North Bay, north of San Francisco. Um, and just hearing him just describe what it means to be a part of something like this, like he never has in 30 years. And feeling that shared communal experience, like being with our community inside and also simultaneously the jarring nature of that, like their matter of fact, day-to-day experience, you know, for us, for those that don't live it, a moment where an alarm goes off because something's happening in the yard where kind of everything needs to stop. I mean, at least anyone inside incarcerated needs to stop and drop to their knee. Um, while we're still playing songs, like through the alarm, you know, these moments that's just the wake up, you know, like this is where you're really at, you know, how humbling and ooh, intensely emotional, but also like a lot of good, 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 good stuff. I mean, that's kind of the nutshell of the three weeks is, is that the spectrum of all this, like how much grief is felt and held and then the joy, laughter, release, catharsis, healing, you know, in all these spaces, but it's a ton. And, and it's also coupled with what I'm doing regularly anyway, which is a lot of work with cancer patients, going in to see patients at the hospital, doing the workshops, just a dense three weeks. And I get to the end of that and I'm just angry. I, I'm, I think that's kind of what can happen sometimes with me. And I wonder when I'm growing up, I'm a little boy and I'm around a lot of depression, a lot of grief, a lot of upset and dysfunction and broken hearts. And then I'm just angry, you know, throwing tantrums when I was a little boy, probably both to get attention, but also just because like that's a response to something that hurts a lot is just being angry. And so I'm having this personal experience emotionally at the end of these three weeks where I'm just, yeah, I'm feeling that a little blocked, uh, protective, defensive maybe, um, but kind of upset, upset. Um, and so then I got to talk to Amaratma, our guest in this episode. Amaratma, we just both met coming out of that same feeling. I mean, we talk, we talked during, during the interview, like we both didn't want to do it. We both hoped the other one would cancel. We both considered not doing it. It's nine in the morning and we just both show up and feeling our own versions uniquely of this thing, kind of being upset. And and he, before I shared any of this, started speaking from that experience. And so I just want to say personally, having this conversation with Amaratma when we got to was timed uh, like miraculously. And so I hope, like it was for me, and like I trust the podcast works, that if I'm if I'm getting what I need, if the guests getting what they need, then it'll offer something to you listeners. And so that is my prayer for this episode that you get a little of what you need. And it's a there's a lot to get, actually. And so I'm just appreciating the the generosity of Amaratma saying yes to doing the show and pushing through his 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 resistance to to actually clicking the Zoom link. Um and both of us feeling how good it felt, how lightened we were, how joyful we got to be, like innocence reclaimed, children, little boys celebrating at the end of like a lot of adult grief and upset. Um, 
And that's the arc of this conversation that you're about to listen to. So let me let you do that. Let me let you do that. Amaratme is a grief coach with advanced certification as a grief recovery specialist. He's a board certified chaplain, having worked with hundreds and thousands of grievers in a trauma one university hospital, specializing in end of life care, palliative care, trauma, and critical care. He has a dual master's degree in traditional Chinese medicine and divinity and uses a trauma-informed mind-body-spirit approach to teaching and helping grievers from the many losses that occur through life. He currently offers one-to-one virtual grief coaching to grievers on how to grieve and how to let go. And I got my one-to-one session in this episode, which is the best, right? I mean, I got that and I think it's so good to have an episode hold that as an offering to you and your little ear canals. So here we go. Let's get to it. Welcome to this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Amaratma Khalsa. Well, yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for and the invitation and for sharing with me. I'm going to kind of jump into it my side, too, because, you know, you, you create this vulnerable space to connect and just share authentically what's going on. So before I jump into, like, the background of me and who I am and why I do what I do, yeah. you know, for me, the experience of just supporting people who have grief and really a lot of emotional pain is, like, really that self-care piece and always bringing it back to making sure that, I'm up and okay with the work that I can do for myself and the kind of the nature of that. And for me, it's like, I hear your emotion. I hear your tears. I hear the the work that you're doing, the kind of impact that's there. For me, the experience is like, Oh, I get grumpy, man. I get overwhelmed. It's like a hangry piece to it. You know, like <laughs> oh it's like I'm in a perpetual God. hangry state. Oh, you know, you're, <laughs> oh, Atma, you're giving me like, I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off, but you're giving, you're yeah. making me be honester. <laughs> um, cause that, that, that is, I was just texting yesterday. Um, after all this stuff, Chelsea Coleman is our, our creative director and, and she's the kind of the first person that started doing this work with me. And I was texting with her about kind of what's been coming up the last few days since everything kind of quote unquote done. And, and yeah. that's what you're describing. <laughs> that's part of the dark stuff that, that bubbles up. It's like, and my family and my household, I'm like, Ooh, this is the place where I fall apart. And boy, is it a bummer for them sometimes, but yeah, yeah it comes in in that way. You know, the frustration, the anger. Yeah. 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 I'm in like a perpetual hangry state sometimes, especially when I've overextended <laughs> myself and I try to eat and I'm like, Oh, it'll go away. And it's like, it doesn't go away. And I was just like, Oh, then I need a little bit of ice cream. And I'm just like, I'm still frustrated. Ice cream. Oh you know? And I'm just like, oh. you're speaking all my language, all you my know? languages. Because it's oh, normal, you that. know? And so like, there's a part of me that like when you do this work it's like you arrive into the dark and you find light you know you find peace through it and it's kind of remarkable because we're all looking for the light but we never think to look in the dark for it and you know like that that was it and so as i've arrived into the dark within my own life and the darkness of other people's lives and just kind of gotten comfortable within what we refer to as the dark or the uncomfortable or you know, the negative or below the line, whatever it is, you know, how we always describe that stuff. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's not breaking down. It's not falling apart. I, it's, it's, it's more like, Oh, I'm being human and I'm reclaiming my humanness and I'm allowing myself to be present because I know it doesn't define me. It's a phase. I'm in a, I'm in a moment. I'm in a process and I can use my self-care routines 
to kind of like help me be buoyant, but then also not judge myself for being grumpy and frustrated and overwhelmed, recognizing this is part of the spectrum of emotions that, you know, it's, it's okay. It's, it's, it's okay. Mm. And that, that experience there of not judging it and not, you know, defining it to being something that it should be, it shouldn't be and all that stuff. Man, that stuff is the worst. That's, that's the true darkness to me is when the judgment and shame come in and, you know, right. my, my wife knows that like, oh, I'm jerk face, grumpy face right now. And she's like, oh, I'll just give you space. And I let me do what I do. And what I, what I need for that is just quiet. Like mm. I just need like a space where I'm not asked to do anything and just to mm-hmm. kind of be in a intentional mindless state that allows then for me to be like, ah, oh, and I get my decompression that way. And let oh, me put on, let me gosh. put on some sports, you know, let me watch some football mm-hmm. or some baseball or something. Let me just yeah. kind of like enjoy the sort of grounded reality of something that's mm. nice like that. And that, that does it for me, you know, personally. So I, you know, I, I loved how you introduced and kind of welcomed that we call it the threshold of vulnerability and you just arrived and I'm like, oh man, I got to meet you there, man. Like, thank you. <laughs> thank you for the invitation. Oh, for sure. I, well, I mean, I, everything you're saying right now, I, I'm, I'm still very emotional, uh, listening mm-hmm. to you because, cause I, I'm just going to like be a little more clear that it's definitely been the last few days for me mm-hmm. and, and to have you acknowledge that yeah. in that way and, and you know, I still, there is guilt and shame, you know, cause like right. I, I come into the household and the kids are like, what's up with Papa, you know, yeah. like, and, um, and it is angry, angry and yeah. it is, it is drawn to ice cream and, uh, maybe not sports, but like, uh, activity, uh, media, uh, active media, you know, like I'm always people on the, the, you know, listening to the podcast and coming to the shows for years, know that I'm a huge action movie fan. Cool. And yeah. I know that that's part of it too. It's yeah. like, I just want to watch like, and it's not, and it, can I just tell you that it doesn't feel like a numbing out to me. Yeah. I feel like I've been needing to say this more yeah. and more like this clarity I have that. And I wonder if you could speak to what it's like for you. It's not a numbing out. It's like, I want something to really kind of take the lead of all my sensory experience because I've been doing so much of like holding it for others or drawing forth others or, you know, really like kind of in a way, maybe even being the, like, I'm the thing to like, um, draw what's needed out of you. And when I feel like at the end of a week, like this last week, I want ice cream and I want like the newest, you know, intense movie because I want to be kind of consumed in a way by consuming, <laughs> if that makes sense. I don't know if you relate to any of that, but oh, legit. I wonder. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in some ways, in some ways, you know, like the, the big part of this conversation to me and how, how it kind of evolves is the sort of needing to be perfect and how ridiculous that is. Mm. And this this sort of sometimes with grievers we feel this way you know we got to perform all the time and there's there's this line that we get that we have to draw that or a barrier between how i'm needing to exist for the world and how the world needs to see me versus how i'm really feeling and Mm. i i work really hard to make that line as transparent as possible so that i can really be me without there having to be this sort of perfection performance reality to it. And so in some ways I I know that eating my ice cream, watching football, watching my sports, or, you know, like uh, doing what other things that I do that kind of exist, that mindless place is not actually going to take away that pain for me, but it's going to give me a bit of a buffer in a, in a real human oriented way that, Mm. that gives me then the space for the readiness 
to allow myself to really get into my journaling exercise, my decompression exercise for the intensity of the space that I'm holding for others. And so in some ways, it's it's a bit of a sensory kind of where, where it's like not me giving it out, it's me receiving, but it's also me claiming my humanness and my imperfections as being totally perfect and mm. loving into all of those parts of myself and saying, yeah, you know, I know that I should go to bed because it'll make it easier for me to wake up in the morning to do my work. But you know what? I'm just going to kind of sit on Instagram maybe for another half hour and <laughs> yeah. before I go to sleep at night and take a little <laughs> bit of my rest away and have that blue light and be like, you know what? I'm going to still be okay. Like I'm still, yeah. I'm still all right. And when I do that consciously and intentionally, as opposed to unconscious or unintentionally, there's a sort of ownership that mm, allows making the choice. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a big piece of it for me. Like I'm really big mm. about integrity and ownership in that way. And when I kind of arrived there unabashedly, unashamed, unembarrassed, I could just be like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm human. I'm okay. I don't have to be perfect in whatever perfect means. And in that context, man, there's a lot of love and a lot of joy that starts to really come in for myself, which then allows me to translate for others, to give them the permission to them to be themselves. And then this is like that context of healing, that container of healing that I really remarkably love. But it always comes back to me and my practice and my relationship to it. And so, mm. you know, like there's just a fondness. And I had to learn that. I had to like deeply unlearn this for so much sure. of my life, man. Like deep, deep unlearning for that. Because well, I, I, so, I'm I was so a performance dude. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, um, can you say a little more about that? I mean, you have already, but uh, boy, I have three <laughs> questions. And I'm going to say them all now so we don't forget them. Cool. Um, and then let's just see. We'll tackle one at a time. Um, I, I do want to come back to the anger and and the sort of annoyance and that that particular emotion. And I wonder if you could say more about like why, you know, like why is it that? And then I also want to say like, have you been looking through my my house windows at all the things that I do <laughs> that I do? Just this Instagram at the end of the day, the watching a show, you know what? You know, it's just like so wild. And I mean it. I've had a rough few days, and and you're just like telling me what I need in a way that seems like you know me well, and. <laughs> Also, I know the listeners are like, he's talking about me too. Um, so that that's good. I just want to say that. I'm just feeling so grateful for what you felt led to get at because it feels mm -hmm. like the heart of where I'm at the last few days. Um, awesome. So again, thank yeah. you. So, so okay. This is often what I do. My question, my, my, lead, my next question for what's next ends up being a lot of talking and then four questions. But um, – I'll, I'm going to see, I'm going to hold a couple of these things and I'm going to be direct. When you say performative, mm -hmm. um, you talked a little bit about that. Can you, can you describe more of how you're in the world that way or have been in the, in the world as quote unquote performative? Yeah, absolutely. So like, I'll get a little bit of my background here. So, you know, my, my, I'm South Asian, I'm Punjabi Indian and my parents are both from India originally and they grew up in a real difficult time of India where we had post-World War II, post-partition, and a lot of a lot of intergenerational trauma, a lot of wars that were fought, a lot of a lot of chaos. My mom's side of the family had to uproot their life from a, another country to another location and almost died on the way. And you know, and, and a lot of and a lot of tragedies, you know, like it, it would have been very easy for me, my brothers, my family to not at all be alive based on the kind of circumstance. So mm. there's a sort of a miracle to my existence just mm -hmm. in and of itself. And that, mm -hmm. that in and of itself is kind of a, we call this an intergenerational trauma, kind of like a pressure to perform um, and to exist a certain way. And being South Asian, you kind of have this lawyer 
engineer, doctor, kind of really cookie cutter life because security and life life importance is so important, you know, like in terms of having mm. a family, having a job. So this Indian American dream is a real big part of our life, my upbringing and part of just my own personal story. But growing up in America, being born in Canada, but having family traditionally from India, it's kind of like this massive pivot that hasn't taken place really in many generations of my family's life. And so to be this sort of one that's part of that pivot or my parents being the the initiators of that pivot really comes in with a lot of complexity around identity and around approval and around love and around nurturing. And that was a big part of my life. And so I had to, knowing that at a very young age, I had a lot of existential pain around mm -hmm. who I am, where I'm from, what this life is really about, and then much more spiritual oriented concepts around what is this life really about and what's my life purpose and why am I here? And I was plagued with that question at a very, very, very young age. I could recall at about five years old, mm. probably my like earliest memory at about five years old where I felt a profound spiritual groundlessness that mm. felt untethered to the nature of the world. And then mm -hmm. being at that age, but not knowing how to speak about it and having parents who are really working hard to create a secure upbringing for me, making sure I got shelter and food and schooling as main, main priorities for us. Sometimes some of the emotional pieces or the spiritual pieces aren't necessarily there to really hold and be a container for that. So that's yeah. kind of a solo journey for me and took me to a lot of adolescent existential uh, dark nights of the soul reality, mm -hmm. which comes with many losses along with the deaths that I had in my life. So I realized at a young age that there was something very, very different about me or how I was experiencing the world compared to my peers or my family or my cousins, you know, who experienced it all very differently. And I just experienced it early. I think that a lot mm -hmm. of our family kind of experience it or friends or community experience it at different times of my life. I just got hit real, real early. Mm. And because of that, this road less traveled, you know, Robert Frost reality became very prominent for me. And I remember being in high school feeling like, oh, that's that's the journey for me. I'm going to take the road that's a little darker, a little bit deeper, yep. a little bit more existential because this is a reality that's existing for me. These are questions I'm asking and nobody else is really asking. And I have to delve deep, otherwise I'm going to die. And death mm. was very, very close for me at a very, very young age. So I, I was confronted with with the my impermanence so quickly and through that process man i i really i really evolved in a in a profound way but it was very painful to do a lot of thresholds i had to cross sure. but in doing so there was a lot of loneliness that came with that because mm -hmm. when i invited people into that space with me to be understood or to be seen or to be heard mm was very overwhelming for them. And I realized right away that nobody wanted to kind of traverse mm. this sort of deep, dark abyss of the ocean. Mm. Everybody loved to snorkel. Everybody loved to be on the surface. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, crap, man. Like, I am so different. Mm. So I lost a lot of friends based on just being who I was authentically. But I realized to be authentic meant to be alone. And that was very scary. So yeah. that I learned to have to perform at a very, very easy way to snorkel, to play the game, to sort of be there, to, you know, jib jab, whatever, you know, like, you know, just like kind of like chat with people and kind of do it that way. But it was really unfulfilling for me. And there was mm. a lot of performance. And I kind of bought into that performance in a big way because um, of, of just not wanting to be alone in it, man. It was just very, yeah. it was very deep and dark. And, and I didn't have a lot of resources and I was kind of doing a lot of self-teaching in that context. So in that way, um, 
the performance became very exhausting for me, which no doubt perpetuated the dark night of the soul for me. Yeah, yeah. But through that, I try to like chip away at that performance over time. But, but I, I grew into kind of cultivating my own relationship to my own things, created my own major, my undergraduate at UC Santa Cruz. I, I studied a spiritual oh, oriented okay. psychology. Cool. Yeah. I went to Chinese medical school. I did the things that were unconventional to my family's point of view. I did a four or five year medical based degree. I practiced uh, acupuncture for several years. At the same time, I did a ministry apprentice based ministry uh, degree, where I just deepened into meditation, into yoga, into you know a lot of spiritual oriented arts to be able to really have access to this big question of why am I here and what am I what am I here to do, and um, and that was very profound for me. So doing a kind of a dual master's degree. I found a way to sort of merge ministry and medicine together and I got mm-hmm. into chaplaincy and that became my jam for me personally, because then I was able to really be in the depth of suffering and vulnerability and life-changing experiences for people at the bedside. And like you worked with cancer patients, worked in oncology, worked in palliative care, worked in hospice, worked in trauma, mm-hmm. worked in ICU, worked in the inpatient psych unit. I specialize in all different varying levels and I was very good at it. And feel very proud and grateful for my so many years of just despair <laughs> and dark to have a space where it's like, Oh, like, this is what it Here, means. Here's like, why. Yeah. Healers. Like, I was like, Oh, there's purpose. Like, yes. there's like this makes sense. And I oh. was able to flourish in that even being kind of like a non-Christian uh, uh-huh. person yeah. of, or non-dominant faith to be able to mm-hmm. be in an interfaith way in an inner city hospital in Phoenix. And so, that's when I really started to really come into my own, but my background and my education, my personal life experience gave me a lot of foundation to be able to hold space. And that's a long winded answer to sort of explain it. But as time went on, especially with chaplaincy, that, that reclaiming humanness and being less performative became less and less. I just became so much more freeing, emotionally freeing to where I, do my very best still you like on social media i'm trying to be very active about just being exactly who i am as much as i can be yeah and still learning that because the conditioning was i drank the kool-aid man i was very big in the you know the performative oriented aspect of life yeah i i deeply relate to everything continually um thank you for that didn't feel long-winded it felt like again getting getting a, a, a lot of reflection back uh in ways i relate um uh so thank you for all that. You you led me to one of my one of my questions that I'm that I'm holding, and that is this this piece about um, being being transparent, being real. Like you said, the threshold of vulnerability. And I'm wondering, you know, we come from maybe decades. Not everybody working like this in the mental health profession, but you know, people being kind of in that sort of stoic. Uh, professional role with our clients. And, um, I find some curiosity and come am compelled towards like part of why I'm in the world is because I don't have to hold those roles, you know, like part, I think that's part of what works with what I do with you're going to die. It's like, I'm not those people. I'm like, I'm, I'm a community member and I'm someone who for a decade plus has been able to show like, this is what we can do with and for each other. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also fully acknowledging the power of, of, of human beings in the world doing work like yours, you know, therapists, psychologists, uh, you know, the long list of, of resources we have with human beings and their professional work. Mm-hmm. But what I'm compelled and curious about it, and I am wondering if you can speak to this, when you work with clients, is that same kind of 
uh, you know, like you can't center yourself when you're doing that work, but is there an element of vulnerability, a way that you are present in your work with your clients that has you also being that kind of transparent in a way that helps the the client, you know, like, um, and that's in contrast to, I think, what we've probably, you know, coming out of decades and decades of, of people being like, well, t- just talk, tell me more, I'll take notes, and I'm not going to say anything about myself or how I'm actually in the world. You're, you're just getting listened to for an hour. Does that make sense? That's a long, my long-winded uh, question after your share. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're right on about it, man. And I love, I love the vibe that we have in terms of this rhythm of this conversation, because that's exactly it. Like I find actually that I'm most, I think, authentic when I'm in client calls because I've really grown and, and honed in the skill set of, and, and, and through years and years of practice, like, you know, when I work chaplaincy and work on all those kind of experiences of life, you can't not be human to human interaction. It can't be this, Mm. you know, uh, I'm in a holier than thou space by being some sort of minister or spiritual oriented person. No, it doesn't work that way. It's, it's purely in the authentic, transparent expression. Yeah. And you can tell that right away because people who are suffering are pure, like, Mm. especially in the end of life situations or where things are life changing there, the, 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 the walls come down and there's a purity of that authenticity. And yet at the same time, the crap detector is huge. And I, the worst yeah, the thing bullshit, we would want, the bullshit detector. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah cool. Yeah. Cool. You swear. So I swear. I swear. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a total bullshit detector, man. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the scenario with that, that creates complexity for folks is that, that a lot of chaplains in their education, especially when they do their work, they have an idea about who they are based on some of the theological upbringing or theological work. And a lot of a lot of end of life care based work is really how to let that go, and 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 relinquish yourself from that performative pastor like reality to being a human again. And that's a really tough thing for people who are coming to that work. And mm-hmm. I was very grateful for it. It was actually saving me because I was doubling down on my performance before I got into that. And I was feeling right. like, oh no, like I got to really create that barrier. And I was really hating myself and really upset about it. And so when I do my client work, man, I have a lot of fun because in some ways while I've been doing grief work with folks, we sometimes dance our way through sessions, man. Like, because (laughs) it's not just grief work. It's actually about joy. It's reclaiming parts of ourselves that are lost. It's coming back to feelings of aliveness. And that's exciting, man. That's beautiful work. And that's, Mm -hmm. I love that. And so for me, having so much of my grief experience, I know the relationship of what it's like to come out to the other side of it. And to be able to facilitate that process for others, it's just so much fun. And we could just, so for me, it's, it's actually where I find a lot of my authenticity, though I'm, I'm conscious about not utilizing my clients for that secondary gain, you know, that like right. hidden agenda, like I need you for me. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's, that's a lot of that. I have to really check myself on a lot of that piece there. And I'm grateful for my end of life care work to really hone that skill in about, being able to hold space, be present, but while still being human and recognize that this is really for them and not really for me. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I really appreciate that. And, and, and I think it's important to say so. And, and, and also like, it would be an injustice to say that you're not getting some kind of healing by being in that context. Oh, like, it's all win-win, if man. you're that, yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you're not, if you're that kind of person, um, it's proof. The proof is that partly that's what's going to occur between you two people. 
you know, in that kind of exchange. In the trauma-informed world, we call this co-regulation and that ability mm-hmm. for somebody to, who's feeling dysregulated to be supported by another person who feels regulated. And that's mm-hmm. pure nervous system, neuroception-based work. And that's a lot of my own personal work that I do behind the scenes that I really dedicate to have pretty strong discipline around. So I know that by my me being in my authentic, transparent, pure self, it's actually creating an opportunity and a model and perhaps a template for them to be that for themselves. And yep. through that invitation of safety, we can have this profound co-regulation. And in that context, a lot of a lot of love, a lot of healing, a lot of a lot of mm-hmm. beautiful transformative energy can come through that. And I'm very, yeah. very grateful for that, man. Uh, yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Um so uh do you cry in any of your se- <laughs> in any of your sessions Definitely. with your client? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. They share some deep things, absolutely. Mm, yeah. I cry based yeah. on sharing some of my stories. I'm big about self-disclosure mm. too. Yeah. You, you know, like a lot of the techniques that I share, I want to model for them. And so then I sure. I'm big about like the self-disclosing piece so that they can see what I've been through, what I've come through. And I think that that once again, bringing back that human-to-human relationship, even though it's professional service, there's that context of not being holier than thou or better than or further yeah. along. It's just saying, hey, you know, I've been there. Let's resource you. Let's give you skills and, and tools. That's my big thing about grief, man, is like, I just feel like we're so inequipped. And if we mm-hmm. can get equipped with resources, then it's like, oh, like, like this is the like the most essential life skill that we've never been taught. Yeah, right. And it's like, oh, when we get equipped about how to do this, it's like, okay, I, I have a sense of confidence in myself that I know that I can come through difficult mm-hmm. life-changing experiences and know that while it might be difficult, challenging, hard, it's not going to actually defeat me. I'm not going to get annihilated by it. And mm. that this, you know, sometimes we define grief as like, you know, this unwanted guest that takes an indefinite residence in our heart. You know, mm-hmm. just like it's a slobbery, you know, <laughs> standard American diet style eating, you know, French fries, burgers, watching TV. You know, it's a sl- it's like this this energy that's sitting in our living room of our yeah. heart. And yeah. it's like, man, how do I mm. get this guy noticed, man? How do I like check this guy out? And there's a sort of a way to do that. And I, I'm I'm really grateful. And so big part of the word, man, is, is definitely that like space holding while also being present and sharing my story and crying through being angry with, um, I get, I get angry a lot because anger is a really uncomfortable emotion that it's important for people to express and learn to, to build comfortability. So I try to, I try to, I try to work the spectrum of emotions for sure, just personally, authentically, and as, as, as well as an educator. So, Amar Atma and I talked for, wait, okay, wait, wow, hold on, sorry, just launching into the next thing. Didn't even take a moment to say, ooh, hey, hey, how's it going? I know I can't hear you, but I do care about how it's going. So, say so out loud. Um, I hope this episode's offering you a little bit of what you need and tell me if it is, tell us. In fact, you can actually, you can talk out loud right now like I'm listening, please. Go ahead. Or you could email me. Just 
shoot me an email at ned at yg2d.com because I want to know how's the, how's the episode going for you? How are the episodes going for you? What do you want more of? What do you want less of? Anyway, so the mid-show moment's supposed to slow us down. I'm sorry. I rushed into the mid-show moment, but this is us saying, hey, thanks for listening. Okay, so Amaratma and I talked for an hour and a half probably. I always invite the guests like, hey, do you want to do you want to have a conversation? Not an interview. It's a conversation, please. And also, we only have to talk for an hour, but we can go longer if you want. Everybody wants to talk longer than that, which is awesome. But the show's edited down to like the hardiest bits. Anyway, at the beginning of my conversation with Amaratma, he talked about like death in his life when he was little. And I just kind of kept it in the back burner of my brain because I wanted to revisit it. And in this second half of the, the episode, you're going to get to hear him talk about that. I just was like, well, what about being five years old and and what was death to you then? And he kind of like caught me, kind of like I just sort of caught myself and hope I do more and more of catching myself, slow down. Wait a second, can we just take a breath? That's a big question. Or that's a big thing that just happened. Let's slow down. I need to. I just kind of get hyper wound up, emotional, kind of everything rising up into my like upper parts of my chest and head, dropping back down. Amaratma gave us that. We were talking and he said, yeah, I want to talk about that, but can we just like transition purposefully? And so you'll hear that moment. And I actually asked him, like, do you have anything you want to share in the middle of the episode that that might be a, an offering to our listeners, a place to kind of be fragile and feel our mortality and feel our being here, our presence here. And he said, yeah, I want to talk a little more and share a little more about what I did in that moment when you asked me about the five-year-old part of my part of myself. And so what we're sharing with you here now is Amaratma recording a version or maybe let's just say actually what he did when I asked him about that five-year-old self. So here's that moment scored with some more lovely music from producer Nick Jana. Oh, taking this moment to breathe. And tune into the part of myself that my inner child and as I do this with my breath we don't only just recall the memory or memories that come in but I allow myself to feel them through my body I feel it in my chest, lateral to each side of my sternum, sensations of warmth,
my shoulders. Right at the top of my shoulders, a tightness and a pulling that leads into my neck. And normally for me in the past, I'd be very scared of these experiences, these sensations. These would be sensations I would be hiding away from, pushing away. But I know that my body is expressing emotions, and that emotions are nothing to be afraid of. And so I allow, and I sit with the experience comfortably. That gives me an access to a release, like a portal through the pain. And I allow myself to feel and I breathe with it. And as the memories of my childhood, childhood wounds, or elements of loss of innocence come into my life in this moment, I receive, I don't resist. peace and it's lovely all right so let's let's break down anger because i think this is a super important topic right like because anger is an emotion but in some ways it's a oversimplified emotion anger has a has like a, its own family yeah, of other yeah, emotions you're right yeah that ex- incorporate like annoyed and infuriated and enraged and Mm -hmm. bitter and resentful and indignant and, you know, self-righteous. Like there are a lot of different anger feelings that we sometimes compartmentalize as being anger, which is really not that. So in some ways, the the basic thing for me is face embrace release. That's, that's the jam here. Can you say it one more time? Face embrace release. Okay. So in some ways, our normal reality around around anger or really powerful emotions is to judge them right away. Oh, you know, what's going on here? No, 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 no. I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And, or the other person is wrong or I need to justify certain things and yeah. this sort of need for being right. But in some ways, I think anger for me is actually the surface level emotion. And I have several other emotions that are underneath that's leading to that anger. Mm-hmm. And I want to lean into that a little bit mm-hmm. because while, while I feel anger underneath is actually, I might be a little scared. I might be feel a little insecure. I might actually feel really frustrated by the nature of how things are going. And so what I want to do is get real clear about how it is that I'm really feeling and allowing that to come in and being present to what it is and not ask why I don't want to bring it up into my intellect. I really want to allow myself to sort of feel into the experience. And interestingly, and it's slightly counterintuitive for many people, well, if I know why, then I have an understanding and then I can do something Mm -hmm. about it. And my feeling would be like, there's nothing wrong with my anger. There's no problem to fix. It's a feeling that I want to allow to express. And often the time, it's not actually anger. It's another feeling. And unless Mm -hmm. I feel into it and allow myself courageously to arrive into it, get past a little bit of my emotion phobia, 
then I can really feel what's going on underneath that iceberg and underneath the water and sort of like, what am I really, what's really going on here? And there is so much alleviation and relief Mm -hmm. because when I face into it and embrace it as something right, not something wrong, then it allows me this whole treasure trove of insight and realization that comes through and gives me context to where my anger is coming from. So am I truly infuriated or enraged about something? Well, then yes, then that's something active that I want to do something about. Mm-hmm. Then I have to take action to it mm-hmm. because it's something social justice based and I got to mm-hmm. speak about it and I got to mm-hmm. give voice to it and I got to be, you got to be raw about it and I got to be expressive about it. But if I'm scared, then I got to be with my fear and mm-hmm. I got to be like, well, what am I really nervous about? What is it that I'm feeling insecure about? What is it that I feel like I'm, I'm kind of holding myself back and fear is then a really different emotion or really and just actually feeling powerless or helpless. And I don't know what to do. And my anger wants to do something, but I'm really feeling like I, I don't have anything to do. And I'm sitting in this experience here and I got to feel into that. And that's a chaotic experience and this feeling of uncertainty. And so I got to be with that uncertainty. And I'm like, ah, oh, okay. I'm feeling uncertain. Well, I've, I've been through uncertainty in my life before and things have kind of worked out. Oh, do I, am I, is my anger actually trying to be active to something inside me that's really based on the feelings of helpless or powerless. Mm-hmm. Well, what is it? That, am I trying to control something that I can't control? Mm-hmm. Well, what can I control? So then that changes the difference because I identified the emotion at a deeper level. So this is a bit of introspection that I'll do to get clear about it. But the foundation part to me in my practice is feeling it first, just being in tune without judgment, without shame, without minimizing, without invalidating, without comparing, without competing, and just being real with what I'm feeling and allowing my space to feel that. And through there, there's an evolution. And through that evolution is a profound amount of relief. Now, the techniques that I utilize to get there are also varied because it's like, well, how do you just feel emotion? Right? And I imagine that might be another question that comes up. You let me know if this is working. Yeah, keep for you. going. Yeah, that's yeah. that's for sure it. And 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 I'm and I'm just gonna kind of lob another question into the mix here to to mm-hmm. get to something that I know matters a lot to you and your work, and that's mm-hmm. the body movement stuff um, that you've already touched on a bit around like the dancing in a session with a client. But um, but also keep going in the direction you were, just knowing that's a that's somewhere I want to get to while we talk. Yeah. So a lot of the body-based movement, whether it be dancing or qigong, or yoga or breathing exercises, or any of the other techniques that I might teach is all about actually how to regulate the mind and the thoughts. The intellect is really the scenario where we get stuck. Because if grief is a universal problem that we all experience, then we have to have some component of universal solutions in it. And the nature of where our world is at is kind of in a complexity where somehow we've been taught that our intellect, our mind, our rationalizing, our analyzing is the way that we're going to get through it all. But grief, as we know, is a purely emotional response. Mm -hmm. It is an emotional response. And the challenge in it is that it's not itself an emotion. It's a, it brings a cascade of emotions and there's varying many emotions and sometimes conflicting or paradoxical emotions that that confuses the situations and overwhelms us. And so the challenge is, is that we're trying to use an intellectual framework to an emotional response and an emotional response that hits the body, mind, and spirit, the whole dimensional continuum of our being. So we have to utilize then a multidimensional relationship to do that. And that's what I do a lot of personal yeah. work on myself. That's what brings my 
20 years of education and exploration to figuring out what's going on in my life because I understood it as it's not just one thing, it's many things at the same time. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that work actually, whether it might be breathing exercises or a little bit of dancing or movement-based things or a little bit of journaling with prompts is how do I regulate this mind and all these thoughts that want to intellectualize, that wants to rationalize, that wants to ask why, and to say, no, nah, we're not thinking through this. We're going to feel through this. Mm -hmm. And feeling with, feeling through is the way that we move this energy. It is the way. It creates the banks of the river to get the stuck, stagnant, stale energy out. And that's, it's very, very profound in that way. That's so, great. Then for me, I do, you know, morning time, I do morning pages. That's a really powerful technique. I was going to ask, yeah, what's the journaling? Yeah. Yeah. So morning pages based on Julia Cameron's work uh -huh. is my first technique. It's a first release technique I teach my clients. It's a way to just have a mental dump every day. It's not journaling. It's not like, you know, it's not like chronicling your day or talking about current events, though it initially might start that way. Now it's a three page, unbroken, uninterrupted cycle of writing freehand that allows for a mental dump in a way in which at the end of that, that event, you throw it away. There's nothing profound. There's nothing insightful. There's nothing magical. There's nothing that you need to read back. There's nothing that needs to be shared with anybody else. It's a way to have a daily release exercise. And that's how I often start my days. I do a lot of movement-based exercises that incorporates movement, breath, and rhythm together that helps me get relaxed because I understand that a lot of what's happening in our mind is actually because of what's happening in our physiology. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of the trauma informed pieces. Mm -hmm. So I got to relax the nervous system. I got to get back to a place of safety as opposed to mobilization with that fight flight response. Mm -hmm. Many of us in our culture and our society are actually living in a very chronic stress state, yeah. which makes it very difficult to do grief work because that's going to create a whole storyline and a narrative that's going to create a lot of complexity for us. So we got to bring some safety into the body. And so regulating the breath through movement is extraordinarily important and very helpful. I incorporate mindfulness into that practice as well so that we can learn how to observe and um, be a witness to what's going on as opposed to judge and shame what's going on. And that's a big part of my work also. Mm. It's a big part of my practice. And then let's see, what else do I incorporate into my, into my routine? Yeah, and so then through that experience, I create an avenue for myself to allow myself to feel. And then through feeling, I allow the, the evolution of that through observation. It's like, okay, what's going on? What do I really feel? Yeah. Oh, I'm feeling sad. Oh, yeah, all right. What does sadness feel like? Recognize that sadness is not only going to manifest in my mind, it's going to actually manifest a lot through my body. So I might get that lump in the throat. I might get tears coming into my eyes and allowing that expression to be there. And a lot of the ways is that when we can allow ourselves to feel without blocking it that's the embracing piece when we do it without resistance the release comes very quickly very naturally mm -hmm. thank you thank you for all that Amaratma. yeah thank you um <clears throat> that's that's wonderful and it's wonderful to feel myself <laughs> and know the listener is going to be like all right i just need to go to his website <laughs> you know because it's like you're giving a really concrete uh concrete options for how to enact uh um 
your work, like, you know, not just for your own self-care, but for, I'm sure all this is for your clients, you know? And so I'm appreciating that and knowing it's like the tip of the iceberg of, of, of probably the detailed versions of how you do all this. So I'm, I'm feeling that like already being like, can we start setting up sessions where you, you and I can talk and I could do some work with you. But, um, so, so thank you for that. And, and I mean it as in like, so clear, like the resource of what you do for yourself and teach others, um, give to others. Um, so, uh, I want to back up because this is something I've been thinking about coming into talking with you and, and often it's like, well, what is that journey? And I know you talked about it really in detail, but I want to go back to Amaratma. That's the little boy, the five-year-old. And you kept saying like death, is this okay if we kind of go, go in that direction right now? Absolutely. Is there anything feeling incomplete on the like grief and the body movement? Anything else you want to add before we shift, shift back to the little, little boy? (laughs) I would say, I would say that I think that, that sometimes that because emotions are feeling very scary and very overwhelming at times that we do end up get into a state that we think that time will heal the wound Mm. and that we have to be passive in it. And I, and my feeling is, is that we don't have to be, that there's rural empowered choices that we can have in that regard. Then the question comes in for us as a sense of readiness to arrive into that space. And a lot of the work that I do with grievers and with people who are experiencing a lot of emotional pain is actually helping them to cultivate a relationship to peace, love, and joy, because those are actually the emotions that we're most unfamiliar with. Yeah. And in some ways our letting go process is letting go of the doom, gloom, despair. And and having something concrete and technique based and recognizing that it's actually quite a simple formula to that process is like, oh man, mm-hmm. like for real, for real? Like <laughs> there's such an alleviation to know that like this thing that's like feels like, no, I don't ever want to feel grief ever again. Like you have a breakup and a rejection, your heart hurts. You're like, I'm never going to do that again. Or I'm never going to love again. And it's like, oh, but to know that I can be able to be okay through mm. human experiences and that I'm going to be able to be resourced in that. Mm there's like this freedom that comes in that. And yeah. I feel like that was the only completion that I wanted to share because you're right, Thank man. You. It's like, there are, there are concrete things and I'm grateful to know like 30 years of struggle, man. And like coming into like, <laughs> I, I ways found to something. Help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trust I me. Something. I dug, I dug. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And thank you for that. Yeah. You know, I mean, like I'm not comparing us, uh, uh, in a way that disrespects the work you've put into your life and, and your personal being in the world and in and, and your community. I, I don't mean to say me too, but, but I, I do relate to that. Like, what do we, what do we, what do we bring back? You know, like, what do we bring back mm-hmm. from the dark places? Like you said, the dark night of the souls and, and, um, yeah. and, and I don't, I don't want to put all that responsibility on everybody. You know, I was talking with a cancer patient yesterday, every now and then, you know, I'm, I'm inviting these patients that I meet in the hospital to like join workshops, you know, and, and partly it's to get that creativity space, that catharsis, the medicine of like writing, like you mentioned with Julia Cameron's The Artist Way morning pages, um, mm-hmm. knowing that there's worth in that, you know, moving the stuff out of us to be in front of us or between mm-hmm. us and community. And that's the other piece, right? It's like getting to be with other people who yeah. from their own unique journey really get it. You know, um, one story meeting another story, like definitively. Um, but, but sometimes, so so that'll be like my invitation, like come join these workshops. But sometimes I'll sense from someone like, oh, you, 
you know, I want you to come do this because it might be of value to you, but I want to just add this extra version of the invitation, which is I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain you're needed in that space. Like how you, how you're dealing with this, what you've lived through. Um, I wonder if you consider coming because I think the group would need you in a way. Um, and the reason why I'm mentioning this is because I think that it is an option for us to live through the things we live through and somehow bring back um, wisdom, knowing, understanding, gifts, resources, activities, like everything you've shared. Um, and also, I don't want to put that on anybody too. You are right. It's like, I don't, I don't want to lean in too early to the, like, what are the gifts you can bring back to people? Um, but just acknowledging you for being the kind of person who did do that and has done that for decades and has brought back things to give to others, to help others and feeling and relating to that. And, and, and this, this is perfect kind of transition into the, the question I wanted to get, get back to, you know, part of the reason why I'm, I'm this way in the world. One of the reasons why is because of that early version of, of the dark night and that, you know, I too lived in a, like my five-year-old was in the midst of like depression and anger, the household that was broken mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and the cancer diagnosis, you know, just a handful of years after that and living with that, mm -hmm. you know, and, mm -hmm. and so that way I relate to how you described yourself as a little boy. Um, and then my mother dying at 26, you know, it's, you look around you and there's no one, you know, everybody had their moms and still do for the most part, you know, and, and, and obviously as we get older, that's, that changes, but I'm, I'm like the earliest version of that in my community. <clears throat> and so then in the world, right, this like above average early loss, um, but that I, but because of that coupled with whatever other things I'm now in the world in a way that's like. I've been sourcing all this, you know, working through it myself somehow to bring something mm -hmm. back. And so I wanted to return to your, your story of that. And you might be like, I've covered it enough. I don't want to go into details, but you kept saying that five-year-old like was with, there was death was very present and, and, and yeah. maybe literally and, 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 but also maybe figuratively. And I want to let you tell me and, and, and the listeners, like what, what was that presence? What was death as a presence at that early age? Yeah. Thank you, bro. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. And, um, I would say that the experience for me, I think, I think this is a good moment to just take a pause <laughs> and just, and, and invite us, you know, you and I together in our conversation. This is kind of a nice pivot for us. Yeah. Thank I'm you. just going to take a couple of deep breaths <laughs> as I yeah, arrive into that space of my five-year-old self. Me too. You know? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so my experience as a five-year-old was this really untethered experience of life. Mm. It was like somehow I had a comparative reality to something bigger and greater than what was actually existing in the mundane aspects of life, but had no access to it. And the loss of that, like, crippled my innocence. Mm -hmm. 
And it came with, it came with just like the concepts around God, mm-hmm. to be honest, being, being somebody who's Punjabi, which in, in effect born a Sikh, but kind of living in a undiverse California environment, there are a lot of Christian dominance. And because I was a person of the other, I, I didn't really know how to understand to Christian beliefs. And when I tried to explain Sikh beliefs in what I had understood, it was like massive othering that happened for me. Mm. And that was equated with a lot of anticipatory grief around my father, who was in several circumstances at my young age where I had felt that he was going to die early Mm. and created this barrier of love and connection that could not really be there in a full way Mm. because of why would I want to love something that I'm going to (laughs) lose? And that really fucked with me at a really young age. And an earthquake that happened in 89, the San Francisco earthquake, and watching my house move back and forth in this 45, 50 second long reflective time to be like, oh my God, like the earth is moving in this deep way. The Bay Bridge being repeatedly broken down and cars going across scared me. And I was devastated. And my grandmother, who was like the heart of our family, having to be in and out of hospitals and being in a, being in the hospital, but not always understanding, but having to be there because our family did things so collectively and her being in near death situations, but not ever being access to and nobody ever talking about it. And I'm like, what is happening mm-hmm. in this world? Mm-hmm. Why are people like this? Why is it that I'm given coins to go get junk food when I'm not ever able to have junk food. (laughs) And why is it that I'm sitting with my cousins Mm. and everybody else is crying and talking, but I don't have any context and nobody's sharing with me. That's how they would, by the way, they would like be like, go get some candy. Suddenly here's some money. Yeah. Yeah, Right. That's how they dealt with it. Yeah. Yeah, Wow. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and here, stay busy. And, you know, we had game boy at that time. And so like Tetris all the time. And it was like, but then all of these other experiences were happening and I try to just go sit and listen and understand. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, no, 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 not, everything is okay. Nothing, no, nothing's right. problem. And I'm just like, man, I like, I like feeling it. I'm feeling all your feelings. I'm feeling all your context. Yeah, I know. And, I know. <laughs> I know what's going and, on, you know, and yeah. just talk about it. <laughs> just talk about it, man. Like, just talk about death. Uh-huh. Talk about what this life is about. Mm-hmm. Give me context about what we might feel, what might happen mm-hmm. if we were to die, what happens in dying, what happens in this way. And the negation, the denial of it all, man, was like heart-wrenching. So the combination of multiple things in really formative years between five and six years old for me confused my reality. Mm-hmm. And I was lost. And I don't know if I can say depression because there was a speechlessness that came over me. I I desired to wanting to be alone. I desired to wanting to be disconnected. Mm -hmm. I was desiring to isolate. All of these patterns started to evolve for me. And whenever I tried to bring it up, questions around life, spirit, death, it was like they were not able to be met 
with the vigor at which I was asking. And I learned these were taboo things to talk about. And, and I was like, man, I was just, I was lost Mm -hmm. and it was hurtful, but the loss of innocence Mm -hmm. was the biggest thing. And there's more to the story for sure. And, and, and in regards to bullying um, from being the other for people taking their pain and projecting their pain out on me, physical, emotional, verbal levels of abuse and violence were, were prominent for me at a young age where I, I learned that to love was to be hurt. And this became where it instilled, which really developed the dark night of the soul was being undeserving of love mm. and thus undeserving of connection. And the loneliness really set in at that point mm. for me. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all that. I'm just like, Ooh, um, just lots of tears, um, feeling that little version of you. Um, and then suddenly like, I want to get to before we're done acknowledging the time (laughs) seems strange, but I do want to just, just. Let we're good. We're okay. good. Yeah. Um, and we're in it now. You yeah, know? We're, 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 we'll go the distance here. You know, like, like a, we got to complete the exactly, loop, bro. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm always in my emails, like, listen, it's an hour, but um, you know, usually we have to go longer. Um, no, and I'm surprised because people will listen to these podcasts. I'll go like two, two and a half hours. Oh, and I'm just like, yeah, I yeah. I could. <laughs> I could. Yeah. Um, you know what you said? You said. And I really, I really mean it. First of all, thank you. I'm so glad to return to this, this part of your life. And so some kind of beginning, um, of where you are now, how you're in the world now. I, uh, you said, you know, this is so interesting. I've never thought to ask this, but you said the loss of innocence. And my next question is how have you got it back? Have you, have you refound it? Is it a thing we can get again? And and is somehow getting back to innocence, if it's possible, in in how you your life, you know, has unfolded, your work has unfolded, your being in the world has unfolded, you know, is there a way that us getting back to innocence gives us joy again, gives us aliveness, gives us being and it could be like, no, dude, once you lose innocence. <laughs> There's no getting back to innocence, but yes, there is joy. I don't know what, what hits, what lands for you from that question. I'm looking at a picture of myself that I've identified as the purity of my innocence mm-hmm. at about five years old. And when I look at that picture, I'm just like, wow, wow. Look how authentic. And there's a sort of like, almost like the bravado that I see in that picture. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'll describe the picture yeah, for please. you. It's me and my young self. My face is like clean, no wrinkles. You know, there's like chubby cheeks and I'm being handed a trophy and I'm wearing a Jersey style t-shirt and jeans. <laughs> and I have my hair up as I do, but a smaller kind of a cloth piece on it. And I'm being handed a trophy for participating in a soccer tournament and we're at a pizza place and it's me being handed this. And my, my face is like stoked for this trophy, man. Like, it's like, it's like awesome. And it's like, 
Yeah. Uh, you're going to have to and send so, me this, this photo, by the way. I know, right? Yeah. And so uh, it's like my most favorite picture because it like embodies mm. all of which I've wanted to have that reclaimed. Mm. And, and I, I, sat, I sought on a journey to reclaim that part of myself mm. a while ago. Mm. And it's taken me a long time to figure out how to do that work and to kind of reconnect into it. And I'm here to say, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Reclaiming that innocent young five-year-old self oh. is like a truth. It's like, it's available. And to be fully honest, oh. the joy that I experience in my life is not necessarily the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, we talk about yeah. like being in the dark tunnel and it's like, oh, we'll get to the light at the end. No, it's the light that I shine from within myself through that reclaiming of that innocence that I can be in the dark tunnel, but it's lit up mm-hmm. through me. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it's so <laughs> rich, man. It's so awesome. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so grief work turns into being a little bit of inner child work. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the losses that we have, whether that might be a prominent death or a divorce or other the forms of loss that we have, in some part, what we're doing each time is reclaiming a part of ourselves that we lost through the loss of the person, loss of the thing, loss of that intangible relationship. And in some ways, grief work in terms of the way that I understand, the way that I offer it is really, a. In, it, there's always primary loss, a secondary loss, this gets real technical, but like there's always more loss than a loss of a person. Mm-hmm. There's more aspects to that. And when we can name into those pieces, inherently there are parts of ourselves that we start to reclaim. And when we start doing work around our parents, even if they've died or they haven't died, you can still do grief work around people who are still alive in your life because it's not just the loss of them. It's the grief of a relationship that you wish you had or that you had wanted. That kind of brings you back to a little bit of family of origin and inner child experience that allows a, a reconnection and a, and a, and a bridge to connect to that part of you that's felt so distant. Now you must understand that my identity of my younger childhood, this is this is big for me, yeah. right? My younger identity, the way that I thought of myself for probably 25 years, probably even close to 30 years, I'm nearly 40 years old, nearly 30 years of my life, maybe 32 years, I might say, was me in a fetal position, knees up to my chest, sitting in a dark corner of a dark closet. <laughs> and the... Uh, the, being scared of the door opening. So I'd almost have this metacognition where I saw myself that way. It's like I was in a prison and I was myself. That's how I saw my youth. That's how I saw my younger yeah. self. I. It's actually funny that I bring it up now because I've almost forgotten mm-hmm. that's how I saw mm-hmm. it because I see the picture of myself with the trophy <laughs> yeah, and the stoke that, feeling. Yeah. <laughs> because that's actually yeah, how I see yeah, it. I'm like, yeah, oh yeah. Totally. And this sort of sassy, mm. gravitas, bravado mm. self that has, that gives no shits, you know, kind of part of me that just stoked and goes after things that I'm super excited about. That's like, that's, that's like who I am. <laughs> yeah, I feel <laughs> that's that. That's like exactly I, I who I am. I feel that. That's like exactly <laughs> oh, who totally. I am. And it's like this sort of timid and fearful mm. and scared of the world. Obviously, there's parts of me that I still have fears, sure. not that I'm... I'm like holier than thou or like I'm above and beyond and transcendent all emotion. No, it's not what it's about, man. Like going to the beginning part of our conversation, but I can be with that without it be crippling, yeah. you know, like, and so it's really, it's really phenomenal for real. Like loss of innocence is a, is a very core identity loss 
and gratefully, lovingly, ah, stokedly, there's reclamation that can come in. So it's not just joy, but this like purity Mm -hmm. of self Mm -hmm. that's like badass, you know, (laughs) like totally. That's super fun child, man. That's just like before the wounds and the pains came through. If you want to check out what Amaratma is up to, you can definitely just go to one link, amaratmacoaching.com, and I'll put that link in the show notes, but also check Amaratma out on Instagram and you can get to his Instagram through our show notes and likely the website. I, 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 I'm not sure. I just, I just haven't checked, uh, but um. Anyway, lots of ways to connect to him and lots of reasons why you should. Hopefully this episode proved that to be true. Nick, Jaina, how are you? Ned Buskirk. Buddy. My old pal. <laughs> um, how are you doing? I'm up here in Portland, Oregon. I uh, got invited to uh, teach a music composition class about uh, music for film uh, for this music composition class. All of the people there, I'm sure, know a lot about more about music than I do, but they don't know about compromise, mm. <laughs> collaboration. Mm-hmm. You know a lot about that. Yeah. And that ends up being a lot of what you have to do when you're kind of hired to fill a role in the project rather than just the king has commissioned a symphony or something. Actually, yeah. that probably comes with a lot of collaboration, too. Uh, well, it depends on the king. Um uh, do you feel like what you do with your music here in the podcast has some compromise and collaboration? I'm collaboration for sure, but I guess I'm more, in, <laughs> more interested in if you feel like you have to compromise anything when you work on uh, the episodes. Be honest, Nick. No. Well, okay. So working oh, on a film, at least. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm ready. Go. <laughs> working on a film in my experience has been like 90% of the things that I make are rejected oh, because yeah. they just don't fit the emotions of the scene. Yeah. Um, and the benefit is that I can sometimes use some of those pieces and repurpose them for stuff in the podcast. And your rejection rate isn't anywhere close to 90%. <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't think I've ever rejected any. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, what I've rejected is the, probably most commonly is the length being too short. Like yeah, I'm yeah. always like more, 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 please. Um, yeah. So good. All right, cool. I want it to be easy, but it's easy. Your music just always feels right. And it's a dream come true because I always have thought about the podcast medium and wanted to get back to it um, from having done one back in like 2001, you know, uh, I didn't have anybody to work on it with and put music throughout it. Um, except for some kind of musician friends who don't score things as well as you or at all. And so to get to, you're going to die the podcast and have this be a creative project that I have someone like you that just, you know, your music's just perfect for what I've ever imagined or even the things I never imagined. So that's cool. Good. I guess we're having a healthy relationship. 
<laughs> well, this the music of this episode is partly subsidized. <laughs> Stop saying that. <laughs> Sorry. Can I start a sentence with well? It keeps, no, it sounds like a ca- it sounds like maybe there's a caveat. It's like well, yeah, thank I you, I agree. But yeah, but I wanted to use this closing for the episode to quit. No, I think it's been great working with you. The music in this episode is we can see it as being subsidized by some of these film projects Mm, that are, you know, I'm making some really starting some pieces or or planning, discovering things that I can use um, while working for them. And even if they reject a bunch of stuff, I can like repurpose it and use it here. So, yeah, cool. Yeah. I know that that's part of how the music ends up here, uh, which is wonderful. Um, and what, I think there's a couple albums of music you could direct people to briefly, uh, that, that for sure are a way for people to get more of your sound other than just looking up your like Spotify music. Um, can you name your, your albums that are most directly connected at at least in like energy and vibes to the music you use in, in the episodes? Yeah. The last two things I've put out are uh, soundtrack albums that uh, some of the pieces have been the interstitial music in podcast episodes here. Uh, they're called Elemental and All Sorts, which are soundtracks for films of the same name. And those are up on those places. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll link them link them in the show notes. Thanks, mm-hmm. Nick. Um, so I did want to talk to you about this conversation with Amaratma, and uh, I was thinking of you while I was talking to him, like sometimes I'm doing that because I know you're going to listen. You'll be the first to listen to the conversation. But episodes ago, we talked about anger, the emotion of anger, and I don't need to add more and I don't have specific questions. I'm just knowing that we had talked a lot, have talked a lot about that before. I'm wondering how this episode landed for you in that regard. Well, <laughs> I think now is a God, good time for me to <laughs> get to quit again. It's been so nice working with you. <laughs> Take care of yourself. No, um, you often, uh, and I respect this of our workflow. Like you, you do the interview and then you, you tell me that it's there and I download the files and I experience it pretty unbiased to like, what your experience was. Mm -hmm. This was one of the few times where you texted me right after the interview. I've never heard you use this word before. You said, wow, we (laughs) (laughs) it's W O W I E. (laughs) And uh, he said, by the way, he, he was like, wow, you've never used that word before. This is big. (laughs) This is a big deal. (laughs) I guess I should try to use new words every now and then, but also it sounds like it accented my point. Exactly. Yeah. It's impactful. And it's funny given that it's not, you're not talking about a roller coaster or something, you know, like you're still talking wow, about. We, it felt like a still, roller coaster though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've been following him on Instagram for a while and seeing him and his, his advice and stuff, but like hearing him talk, it's just, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can talk about this stuff and have it feel like, is this guy really connected with something? Is he, is he like floating in the clouds? Does he really experience like human emotions or is he just like, <laughs> you know, un- unapproachable in that sense? And like from the first words that he's speaking, like, it's just like, Oh, this is just a guy and he's just talking, but he like knows his stuff. Mm-hmm. Like the real important stuff of like, how do I just like <laughs> live with my emotions and like not be sunk by them and mm-hmm. little, little aspects of that that are so important that I think, become, I don't know, beside the point of what people end up talking about when they have that platform. But 
I'm so grateful that he gets into that little stuff and talks about it. And mm-hmm. it's all those little ways that we get tripped up with, you know, ascribing too much to our thought process of how we've concluded something is and detaching from that. So yeah, it's just, it's just a joy to listen to. Yeah. Cool. It was a joy to talk to him and emotional, like, like we've all, we all get a sense for now from, from listening. But, um, I think one thing I'm, that I'm feeling present to, and that you didn't specifically articulate already, but I, but I think you're getting at this, which is what Amaratma gave me a little more of that I'm interested in more lately than usual is this permission to feel and not to add on top of complicated, often considered negative feelings like anger, shame or guilt about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and how the mind just like layers and layers and layers junk on top of junk instead of what I think Amaratma really offered here, even in the, in the, the middle of the show, this, this here's how you might do this, right? Like how can you be with this emotion and pay attention to it like it deserves? And you may not know why it, it matters yet, but if you just give it that time, you'll know, and it might just end up or result in it moving through you like a release, but it also might clarify something. And I think with anger, it's so important, right? Because it's, it's often connected to like protection or belief or uh, how we think we should be treated or how things should go. And, and so then when we give it attention, it may highlight um, some kind of important revelation or wisdom that we need access to if we only just give it a chance to be felt. And then also the common thing that I hear a lot and in, in, in the work with grief is that there's probably sadness under the anger and um, not always necessarily, but, but for me knowing that like I introduced the episode with, that's definitely, there's something about that. There's something about having the grief and feeling anger about the grief. Um, and uh, really so wonderful. Like I've said already to you, wow, we, uh, and in my introduction, you know, like grateful to have this podcast to get to have a personal moment of catharsis and a little healing. And I really feel like I got that with this episode and talking to Amarama, feeling really clear and grateful for that. You got me thinking about how maybe emotions are just simpler than we want to admit. Mm. And um, really, you can really feel one thing at a time. And if without any other uh, input, if given time, you, you intellectualize it and you add all these other narratives on top of it and it becomes this big thing, you know, mm-hmm. but I've been thinking lately of emotions just as a polarity of like, for example, if we, if we were meeting in an hour and I'm like walking around the neighborhood and I have like some negative interaction, like somebody just does it, whatever does something randomly mean to me. Right. And I get all upset and I'm brooding about it. And then someone walks up to me and like, Hey, Nick, Jana, you're great. I love you. You know? And I come back and see you and you're like, how are you doing? I'm going to be like, I'm doing really good. Somebody talked, Oh, there was this weird thing, but you know, and if you just reverse those interactions, I would come in and be like, Oh man, Hmm. the world is just so mean and random. And like, I don't get it. Like what, maybe I should move out of here, you know, whatever. And it's, it's really so simple that it's like, I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling happy, you know? Hmm. And then in a vacuum, you start to just think of all this, like, well, maybe it's because of this, or I should change my career. Or like I, d- I made a wrong choice years ago, you know? And if you can just cut the, 
uh, balloon <laughs> tie of, of the, of that extra in, uh, intellectualizing and endure the anger or the upset about like somebody was mean to me. Like it's, it's a lot easier, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think like you said, like it's simple. And so then the value of getting it outside of us too, and putting it down, maybe let's say for your example, like between you and I, um, there's something about that, like letting it be simple in that way that you name mm-hmm. it. I'm not going to fix it. I'm not going to take it away. We could, we could like go somewhere with it and hopefully make it better. And so do, you know, in doing that, but just coming out of a cancer patient workshop where someone showed up and was like, I'm a Debbie Downer, you know, today. And she just gave it to us and mm-hmm. it, she felt better. And I said, the point is not necessarily to feel better. And I'm glad you did. I hope that you would, if you name that thing, you named how you're bummed right now, but more importantly than anything, you have a place where you can name it and knowing that we need more of that, knowing that we need more places like that. And, and so mm-hmm. then maybe actively simplifying, you know, it's like, here, this happened. This guy just like was super lame with me out on my walk before our chat, you know, and just being able to say so and have me say, Oh man, that sucks. And that's it. And that there's something offered in that moment that makes it lighter, that gives you relief or or release or catharsis. And now it's like the algorithm is paying attention to the way I feel and how my phone's listening to me. It's like I go on Instagram and I'm getting all these like Timothy Chalamet talking about how when you're grieving, just like be with the pain, you know, like don't make it wrong. And then like many clips from Ted Lasso's uh, you know, the soccer, <laughs> you know, just like talking about like, oh, so women just like listen to each other and then they don't try to fix it. This is how the context in Ted Lasso and, and, and these guys, these soccer guys just being like, oh, cool. Yeah, I could do that, you know, but that maybe there's kind of universal consciousness more than ever now of like, yeah, let's just like give ourselves that name it, find someone to name it with. And so then like, you know, give it away and who knows what's next, but knowing that in itself is some kind of medicine. And does that make you, does does that make you optimistic or feel happy that those concepts are getting into mainstream places like that? Um, yeah, I think it's just kind of cool. Like I really liked watching Ted Lasso because I was feeling a lot of what I am committed to reflected in, in the writing and the storylines. Um, and, and yeah, we just all deserve these simple ways of caring for community and ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so yeah, it makes me feel, feel good. And that, and, and especially in the context of a show for a show that's getting is so recognized and definitely like pushing up against like hyper masculinity. Um, yeah. So yeah, it feels good. And, and then also for me lately, it's coming from that workshop. There was no, like, I'm not like some superhero changing the world. It's not all on me, you know, not that anyone Mm -hmm. listening possibly was thinking that or you, but that sometimes I get the kind of gravity of how much is this working? Does it matter? What else am I supposed to do? If I don't, I'm a failure. And it's like, no, 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 no. You're, you're definitely complicating it. It's not that complicated. It's so simple. I'm just a person who chooses to say yes to the space where someone can feel comfortable and safe enough to name the thing that they're going through and, and everything else else after that is icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) 
Yep. It's been good working with you. <laughs> Say bye to Nick, everybody. <laughs> bye, Nick. And bye, oh. everyone. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Wait, did you have something else to say? I'm not you quitting. keep doing this? Okay, yeah. great. <sighs> okay. Yeah, listen, everybody. Thanks for listening. Listen. Thanks for listening. <laughs> if your ears are uh, here... <laughs> We we're in your ears. We're, we're doing okay, it some yeah, new ones. Keep going back. The taglines are so key. Thanks for letting us be in your ears, everybody. Until next time. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>